Father in heaven, we do thank you, um, uh, Lord, that you came to us uh, not just as an answer to a problem, but you also came to us as light and darkness, uh, that you came to us as um, abundant beauty in the midst of decay. And uh, Lord, thank you that uh, you uh, broke in uh, and showed us that in your son. And Lord, you allowed us to experience that together uh, through the power of your spirit on Wednesday. And Lord, I pray that through uh, your word uh, here tonight that you would change us and make us new. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, If you could remember what you did on August 16th, 2008, what, what was it? August 16th, 2008. It was a Friday. Uh, Maybe you just finished up yet another week of work, another week of school. Uh, Maybe you had just started seventh grade. Uh, Maybe uh, you had just gone off to college. Uh, Maybe you were transitioning jobs. I I don't know. But it was a big, big day at the Wimhoff house. Now, we had moved back to town uh, around the 1st of June that summer. And uh, we had lived with a, a couple of our friends for uh, until we were able to buy a house and close on it and move in. And we were staying in their spare rooms. And uh, this was a big deal for us. I mean, we just, we just bought our first house as a fixer-upper. Uh, I was uh, getting ready to take my first ministry job. I'd been in school, it seemed like forever. Uh, and we were finally both gainfully employed. The first couple years of Genesis marriage, we were both in school full-time, and we lived below the poverty line. Uh, so this was a big deal uh, that... This job was starting, not just because I got a paycheck, but it also was also the first call that God had put on my life in terms of ministry. So we, we were thrilled. There's going to be some stability. In our first four years, we had moved from Lexington. We had moved to Birmingham. We were from Birmingham to Boston. Now we were from Boston back to Lexington. A lot of transition. So now we're going to have some peace and quiet, some calm. And then I jump on a plane. August 16, 2008, I fly to Dallas, and I'm speaking at a retreat. And it's the first session. It's Friday night, and uh, I'm, up, I'm up preaching just like I am now, and my phone is in my pocket that whole time, vibrating over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm like, man, what in the world is going on around here? So I get done, and, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of in a hurry, you know, because I'm not going to get my phone in the middle of the sermon and look what's going on. So I, I get in the, I, I, I pray, I close it up, I pull my phone out and get, go behind the stage and I look and I see 10 missed calls from Jenna. Now, maybe you play that game to get people's attention or you call them over and over and over again until they finally pick up. But Jenna doesn't play that game. And so a bunch of worst case scenarios are running through my brain like, oh, man, did our house just burn down? Did something happen to one of our parents? So I call her and she answers and she, through all of her tears, she says, I am, fill in the blank, pregnant. Man, I about passed out. <laughs> I mean, we got plenty going on here. New job, new house, just moved, been living more or less on friends' couches. And now we're going to have a baby? I mean, I felt like, you've you seen that Jim Gaffigan thing where he says what it's like having a fourth kid. It's like you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. <laughs> That's what I felt like, except I didn't have three other kids. <laughs> Eden was a, a huge disruption to us. And in T minus eight months, she was going to be inserted into the chaos of our lives. 
And I think that's the way that many of us experience Jesus. He comes when we least expect. When he announces that he's coming into your life, he doesn't give you much of a heads up. This was true for Joseph and Mary. Mary and Joseph had not been preparing to be parents of the Son of God. Mary and Joseph weren't especially cut out for this role. In fact, they weren't even married yet. And then they received the announcement of the coming king, and they received this announcement very abruptly. We get Mary's perspective and Luke, and we get Joseph's perspective and Matthew. So let's read it together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. See, last week we looked at the first 17 verses of chapter 1. And those first 17 17 verses line out Jesus' genealogy. Remember, we we saw some... Famous people who were humble, people who did big things, people who had big responsibilities, people like David and Jacob and Abraham. But pride got the best of them, and so God had to humble them. They're the kind of people that are included in the story of Jesus. But you've also got people we've never heard of again. You have Azor. The only place Azor is found is in Jesus' genealogy. You've got Shealtiel. Only one other time in the Bible is Shealtiel mentioned outside of Matthew 1. You have some no-namers. And then you've got some women thrown in here. And for women to be in Jesus' genealogy is totally outside the norm for first century Jewish genealogies. Especially these kind of women. They they had sordid reputations and at least two of them, maybe more, were non-Jews. But the last person in the genealogy, the last person that Matthew lists is Joseph. So it's quite natural that the first scene after the genealogy would include Joseph. And I think his experience of of welcoming Jesus very much mirrors ours. It all starts with a disruption that leads to submission that ends in transformation. Disruption, submission, transformation. So let's start with disruption. You really see this in the first four, four verses. You see what's going on with Joseph. And in verse 19, you see that he has found out that the woman to whom he was betrothed is pregnant. Now, we don't know how Joseph found out. We don't know if Mary told him. We don't know if a neighbor told him. We don't know. But he finds out that Mary is pregnant. And they're betrothed. Now, I know that sounds like an archaic term to me and to you. But think engagement. It's kind of the second step of the three steps to getting married for first century Jews. The first step was being arranged, and usually by the two sets of parents, arranged for 
a son, their son and their daughter to marry when they grow up. And then, then when they're teenagers, they go through this one-year betrothal. And this one-year of betrothal is very serious. Now, they don't live together. They don't have sex during this betrothal. But it's serious because if you decide you want to get out of this marriage, you have to get a divorce. It's also really serious because if one person uh, in, in this relationship commits adultery, that person is stoned and so is the person outside of that relationship. So it's very serious. And the third final step is that they get married. So it's during this serious step, this second step, that Mary's found to be pregnant. Can you, can you imagine Joseph's response? He confronts Mary and says, Hey, I know I didn't sleep with you, but you're pregnant. And she says, Well, well you, you, you got to understand this. God made me pregnant. Yeah, sure. I, I bet. I bet you lots of people have tried that one out on for size, and I bet it went just as well for Mary as it has done for everybody else. So you've got to think that for Joseph, this has crushed him. We can get a sense here in these eight verses that he loves Mary. So he's got this dilemma. On the one hand, he's a just man. That's what verse 19 says, doesn't it? And if he's going to be just, it means he's got to obey the law, and the Mosaic law calls... For divorce when someone in a relationship has committed adultery. That's what Joseph is going to have to do. And divorce wasn't optional for God's people. It was mandatory. It was mandatory because it produces this state of impurity that dissolves the marriage. So that's on one hand. He's just on the other side. He has compassion for his bride. And that's what leads him to break off this engagement privately. He didn't want to expose her to disgrace, so he comes up with this plan to balance out these two values, being righteous according to the law and having compassion on Mary. So he decides he's going to divorce her so he can maintain his righteousness, but he's going to do so privately so that he can have compassion on her. See, Joseph is the perfect mix. He's obedient but he's also nice about it. The problem is, is that Joseph is exactly wrong. He wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to do the compassionate thing. But he did not understand the significance of the coming of Jesus into the world. So God has to send an angel. And God sends an angel to Joseph in order to disrupt his whole paradigm. See, Jesus is particularly disruptive for righteous people. He's particularly disruptive for good people. He's particularly disruptive for well-intentioned people like Joseph. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel did not say, Jesus will instruct you. The angel said, Jesus will save you. That's an important distinction because Jesus isn't a teacher to show you how to achieve salvation for yourself. He's a Savior who achieves salvation for you. See, when you live in such a way that you're saving yourself, you ride this roller coaster. You're doing good, then you're doing bad, then you're doing good again, then you're doing bad. When you're doing good, you're proud and arrogant. And when you're doing bad, you beat yourself up. You live defeated. 
But if you're saved, then you can be joyful without being judgmental. See, Christmas is about a Savior coming. Jesus came not to set an example for us of the best way to be a human. He came to be a substitution for us. He came to die in our place. He took on a Roman cross to save us. And that news is particularly disruptive to good people, to moral people, to well-intentioned people. This is a really important note for, of Christmas for most of us here. See, the church has a really good way of attracting good, moral, well-intentioned people, just like Joseph. But we need a Savior, too. So you can expect a disruption. And a disruption is likely not going to come in the form of an angel during a dream. Your disruption is likely going to come in the midst of suffering. In the midst of your suffering, you're going to wake up to your sin. You're going to wake up to the brokenness of the world. Maybe it's a rebellious child. Maybe it's fertility problems. Maybe it's a health ailment. Maybe... It's a job loss. Maybe it's financial troubles. It could be any number of things. But friends, view this bout of suffering for what it is. It's the painful grace of God that has been sent to you so that you might depend on yourself and so that you might trust in a Savior. A disruption. And this disruption is followed by submission. Did you realize when we read that passage that Joseph, who's the earthly father of Jesus, he didn't get to name him. In fact, the angel tells him two names to give to his baby who's to come. The first one's Jesus, which means he will save his people from their sins. And the second one's Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. So from day one, Joseph has to submit because he didn't even get to name his own child. So when Jesus comes into your life, he names you. You don't get to name him. You don't get to tell Jesus how things are going to be. You don't get to think the way you've always thought. You don't get to live the way you've always lived. You don't get to feel the way you've always felt. Your house rules have been thrown out. And he's going to tell you how things are going to be. And boy, does this challenge the main operating principle of our hearts. The main operating principle of our hearts says that we are in control. C.S. Lewis, in a, his book, Mere Christianity, he gives this illustration about Jesus coming to rebuild your house. And when Jesus comes to rebuild your house, you expect him to fix the roof leaks. They've been gnawing at you forever. The drains aren't working properly. And when he shows up, he, he fixes the roof leaks, he fixes your drains. But then he starts doing some things that you don't expect. He starts knocking out the side wall of your house and putting a brand new wing on it. He begins to put a second floor on your one floor house. He begins to build a tower out to the side and he creates this courtyard out back. And this isn't at all what you had in mind. You just thought that Jesus was coming to make your house this cozy little cottage. But he's not. He's building a palace, and he has every intention to come and live in it himself. See, I think this is the way that Joseph viewed his life. He wanted this nice, predictable Jewish life. 
But God had much bigger plans for him. The same is true for you. You expect Jesus to help you in some really obvious ways. You want him to give you a satisfying career. You want him to give you this perfect little family. You want to never go without. But what happens when Jesus moves in and says, you might have your drawings for how you want me to rebuild your house, but I have my own. And that's what I'm working with. I think this gets at the very crux of Christian contentment. What plans are you working with? Yours or his? Now, if you're working with his, then you begin to see life's surprises as part of his plan for your life. Instead of viewing surprises as these unwelcome parts to the plan that you had laid out. You begin to see other people's intrusions into your lives, not as interruptions, but as people that God has ordained for us to intersect with. And this shift is called submission. And it's the next step of a king coming into your life. So once you've been disrupted, once you've submitted to the king, what can you expect? What's going to happen next? Well, you can expect Jesus to transform your life. See, in the first part of our passage, Joseph is operating from this worldview that's fairly closed. His way of seeing the world involved obeying God and doing right by other people. For him, he's just shooting to be a good and moral person. But somehow, over time, he had forgotten some key things. He had forgot that he was involved with a God who acted in history. He forgot that God was about more than just blessing good and moral people. He forgot that there was this sweeping narrative that he was a part of where God promised to the prophets that a Messiah was going to come and that a Messiah was going to come through a virgin. He forgot that a Savior was going to come through David's line. But then Joseph woke up. He woke up after an angel rattled him and he's become a new man. He now sees the world in 3D instead of 2D. He knows that if he's going to marry Mary, that he's going to endure a lot of hate. He's going to endure misunderstanding. But he doesn't care about his reputation anymore. He knows that his reputation of being righteous, of being just, is going to go away. See, he's been transformed from someone who was good and moral to someone now who wants to embrace both sides of obedience. Look at verses 24 and 25. And 24 says, when Jesus awoke from, his, from sleep, or Jesus, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife. So he took Mary and married her. That's the external side of obedience. But all true obedience has more going on than externals. It also involves the internal. And that's what's new for Joseph. His heart's different. His motivations have changed. His motivation for obedience is no longer to garner this reputation of being righteous and just. His motivation now is about pleasing a God who's invited him to play a significant role in his story. So has this kind of transformation happened for you, brother and sister? 
Have you become a new person? Have you become a transformed person because you've awoken from your dreams of being in control? You've awoken from your dreams of there's no chance really of being righteous. Now, you might be thought of as righteous, but you're not truly righteous. You know that you need an alien righteousness that comes from a Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you noticed how much more is required of you than just a change in behavior, but a change of motivation? Have you been disrupted? Have you submitted to the authority of Jesus? Have you been transformed? If you have, then I dare say that Jesus has named you. And now he's building a palace in you, and he's going to live in it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for disrupting us. Lord, many of us, we came uh, into this room with a whole myriad of um, concerns and things that dominate our thoughts, our vain imaginations, our anxieties. And Lord, maybe those are the things that you're using to disrupt our lives. And Lord, I, I pray that you would breed in us a willingness to submit. And Lord, that you might change us into people that we couldn't have imagined being. Do this for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.